from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Soybean prices soar, adding fuel to the acreage debate. Optimism in cattle country. We think the markets will trend higher, generally speaking, as the year progresses. That's as the industry works to address lingering issues, and we'll have complete coverage from NCBA's annual convention. Seven weeks since wildfires tore through Kansas, it's a story of survival. A lot of people don't see how much you affect other people's lives until your funeral. And they said, basically, you got to, you got to attend your funeral, but you're still alive to tell about it. But from the ashes has come hope, as we show you in Grit with Grace. And in John's world, inflation is up, but it's complicated. Now for the news, a monster winter storm crossing several thousand miles and impacting 19 states this week. That storm bringing some much needed moisture to many areas. The storm brought a mix of rain, freezing rain, snow to central U.S. Airlines canceled thousands of flights and officials urged people to stay off the roads. The blast of frigid weather began arriving Tuesday night. It put a stretch of states from New Mexico and Colorado to Maine under winter storm warnings and watches. Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana and Michigan saw freezing rain, sleet and snow. The heaviest snow in parts of Missouri, Indiana and Illinois. But it's not all bad, as that wet weather was welcome news for some areas where the winter wheat crop was in poor shape. Condition ratings for the crop fell last week, especially in Kansas and Oklahoma. In Kansas, just 30% of the crop is rated good to excellent. That's down three percentage points from the start of the month. Much of the plains continuing to just be engulfed in drought. And in Texas, 0% of the crop is actually rated in excellent condition and only 6% is in good condition. One Texas farmer telling us that they desperately need moisture as they haven't seen rain since they planted the crop in November. It's super dry, no sub moisture. Our wheat, it's uh, as dry as I've ever seen at this time of year at this stage. Uh, we actually, in our last cold spell, we lost some tillers, some viable tillers. We've got real cold forecast coming Thursday morning. And if we don't get moisture ahead of it, which they do have some forecasted, I'll say our wheat's pretty much toast. I, I don't think it'll make it. I mean, we've got one inch cracks in our wheat, which maybe it's happened before, but I sure don't remember it at this stage. Kimbrell says they are drier at this point in the growing season than they were in 2011 and 2012. He did see some moisture this week in the storm, but only about an inch. And soybean prices soared this week well above the $15 mark. Prices pushed up thanks to analysts slashing their estimates for Brazil's soybean crop. And traders believe that will mean more export demand will come to the U.S. But outside money is also flowing in as funds find interest in commodities like soybeans. Analysts tell me that if prices continue to soar, it could end up buying more acres in the U.S. And we'll cover that in our marketing discussion coming up. Well, new cattle inventory numbers out this week showed the cattle herd is shrinking. 
USDA reporting the nation's cattle herd shrank by 2% last year, with the total number of cattle and calves on farms and in feedlots estimated at just under 92 million head. The beef cow herd also declining by 2% to 30.1 million. That's a seven-year low. Heifers intended for replacement fell about 3% for both dairy and beef. The all cattle on feed totaled 14.7 million head, up slightly from last year. The total inventory and beef cow numbers both lower than what the industry analyst had expected, but the cattle on feed number was higher, and we'll have a complete look at that from NCBA's annual convention later on the show. It's meant as a show of support of NATO allies feeling threatened by Russia's military movements near Ukraine. Farmers around the world closely watching the situation there because Russia and Ukraine account for 29% of global wheat exports. Both nations are also key gateways for grain exports. A U.S. farmer we spoke with recently took part in a no-till conference in Ukraine, and he told us many there don't think an invasion will happen. The first thing they told us right off the bat was there's a 99%, you know, 99.9% chance Russia will not be invading. You know, the feeling we got from the people there is in the, the, the meeting with over 200 farmers, I would say over 199 of them will die defending the rights of Ukraine. You know, because they have experienced Soviet rule and they have a taste of freedom. Another place where tensions are rising, Canada. That's as truckers continue to protest vaccine mandates that went into effect last month. The mandates require truckers to be vaccinated before crossing the border. And take a look at this. This is a blockade near Alberta. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police saying the blockade was impacting the flow of goods and services. Well, widespread winter weather blanketed much of the country this week, as you saw. As the latest drought monitor actually grew even drier, we'll have a check of weather coming up right after the break. Your next piece of equipment is on MachineryPete.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPete.com. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Mirosavik. Matt, that widespread winter storm brought some much-needed moisture to many parts of the country. But in talking with some people in the western Corn Belts and even the southwest, it sounds like more is definitely needed. Oh yeah, Tyne, that's exactly right. We're going to need a lot more moisture out there in the West, especially. And if we look at the root zone, it really tells the story. We have seen a little bit of improvement here across the Corn Belt, back towards places like Kansas, Nebraska, even down into Texas and New Mexico. But you can still see how dry that soil is back to the West. So we still need a lot of that moisture. And unfortunately, it looks like the next week or even two could be uh, relatively dry again. So it's going to be a while before we get some of this moisture, but hopefully that comes as we head towards the spring season. Again, still very damp here across the uh, Mississippi River Valley and still dry here in the east. But again, that is not actually factored in with all the moisture moving through from our storm system. That will be factored in as we head through next week. Again, here's that drought monitor still abnormally dry here across the east. Again, this storm system for the second half of the week has not been factored into this, and these uh, Gulf Coast states also haven't been factored in with some of that moisture that we did see from that so could see some improvements next week but again still very very dry back to the west we've seen improvements over the past couple of months but as Tyne said we still need a lot of moisture back there hopefully we can get some as we head towards that spring season but looking at the jet stream on Monday notice that we don't nothing really screams big storm system and it's going to stay that way at least through this week what we have is a ridge building back in the west and kind of a weak trough up here to the north southern part of the jet stream not doing much but the north 
northern part keeps that cold air locked up. By the second half of the week, though, we'll start to see a little bit of a trough come in there to the upper Midwest, Great Lakes, Northeast. That comes with a couple of clipper systems. Meanwhile, back in the West, very, very warm or mild, depending on where you're at. And it's going to stay that way as we head into the weekend. As you can see, another kind of shot of some Arctic air coming up to the northern states, but staying relatively mild down to the south. So looking at Monday, February 7th, we've got chilly conditions here behind that clipper system, not bringing a lot of moisture along with it, but we're going to see more as we head through the week. Some showers down there in the southern Texas, mild out to the west, and another low bringing a couple of showers there to the Pacific coast. Heading through Wednesday, sunny skies in the east. Another clipper system moving through could bring some snow showers there to the upper Great Lakes. Meanwhile, dragging a low through the center of the country, still mild back in the west, so not doing much there and still some showers down there in the south. And then heading into Friday, here's our parade of clippers coming across the north, bringing some light snow showers. It's chilly in the east, mild in the west with high pressure in control, keeping things dry to our south. And if we look at the temperatures this week, it is going to be normal across the mid-Atlantic but staying relatively mild up here in the north and back to the west coast and below normal across the Gulf states as well. And the look at the precipitation again, we're looking at that parade of clipper systems, but most of the country staying below normal by a good bit and temperatures next week could go back below normal there in the east. Meanwhile, still dealing with some clipper systems as well. Time back to you. Thank you, Matt. Well, there are worries about the lack of moisture in parts of wheat country, but it's a harvest rally and weather that actually may be causing soybeans to soar. Pete Meyer and Chip Nellinger join me to explain why next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We have Peter Meyer as well as Chip Nellinger joining us. Peter, when you look at soybean prices this week, my goodness, soybean prices continue to soar. But can you point to true weather issues in South America or is it more outside money that's driving that rally that we saw this week? I think I think it's mostly outside money. And to me, it looks like almost a, a FOMO trade. You know, it's fear of missing out. I, I really don't. I don't get it. I mean, OK, we've seen some of the private estimators be as low as one one twenty five or so. And, you know, we can argue that the potential in Brazil is maybe one fifty earlier in the year. But now they're not at one twenty five. There's been a a couple of them at 125 earlier in the week, and it just keeps going higher and higher and higher. So I don't know. I mean, our our team in Brazil thinks it could still be a 130 in the low 130s. So that's where we are. And uh, Argentina, they say, is okay. But uh, to me, it, to me, it looks like money flow. But um, I also, when I look at, I'm not a technician, but when I look at the uh, the daily charts and see the relative strength index at about 80, uh, that really concerns me a bit. Chip, I mean, you know, Pete mentioned it. It's not like these forecasts in South America changed. It's not like we had a lot of, you know, news that came into this market. So that's why he pointed to kind of this outside money and, and, and that being the main driver. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a combination. Um, you know, I mean, there were a couple of days. One time uh, in the overnight, we had, uh, it's about 5.30 a.m. Central time. You had a 20 cent bar higher in one minute. Uh, so there's some big buying in there, some, some money coming in from the sidelines or wanting to be long. That's a market order at uh, $15 beans and you know just kind of crazy action. We saw that again today during the session, maybe not quite that uh, extreme, but uh, there is just a ton of money coming in. I think part of it is the, the, the adjustment of the market to those 125, uh, 127 type uh, crop estimates that, uh, that Pete was talking about. 
Uh, you know, I think maybe in the market's mind, we still had a chance at 130 in the low 132s. Maybe we ultimately do shake out that low, but markets always overshoot both ways. And I think you're in the process of seeing that happen on this old crop, overshooting to the top side here, uh, you know, overdone, uh, you know, kind of getting a little choppy here up near the highs. So historically, when you see beans north of $14, you always, always, whatever year it was, if you go back 30, 40 years, you're going to see some dollar and a half, $2 swings uh, and corrections, even if we haven't ultimately seen the high yet. So we better buckle up and get ready for some volatility here. Yeah, well, that volatility seems like it's here. And Pete, now we're getting into the acreage debate. Acreage decisions, you know, in this debate is, is far from over. As we see soybeans on this impressive run, do you think that corn needs to claw back, fight back and buy some acres? Well, I think I think what's really happened here is that, you know, if we had, if we have spoken maybe a month or, or just at the end of last year, it would have been a no brainer. You would have looked at the board and said, OK, you got to plant corn. Now it kind of changes a little bit. Now, I I started the year and we, we typically don't start the year that early, but we started at the end of November because clients were asking us and I came out at 90 and 90. And I just one of the reasons is not necessarily the price of nitrogen fertilizer uh, for the corn, but really more of of the availability. I mean, we hear from plenty of farmers, yeah, I got it locked in. And then you ask the next question, well, have you taken delivery of your inputs yet? And that answer is no. And it scares me a little bit. I mean, we saw natural gas this week, you know, up 50 cents one day, down 50 cents today. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a little bit nerve wracking. So um, as as natural gas prices were, were going down a little bit, um, you know, I kind of adjusted our acres to be 91 million corn and 89 million beans. Um, so I do, I worry a little bit that there's going to be too many bean acres because, uh, it's not going to be the year where all these new crush plants for renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel start to take hold of the U S uh, crop. Yeah. Well, and you, you've been talking about that, that crush demand, and that may not be until 2023. You've been talking about that since last summer, but, but Chip now in the more immediate term here, do you think we're in for the wildest acreage battle that you've seen? No, I'm probably in Pete's camp. I just cannot see a lot more corn acres. I could easily see it unchanged to lower. I think you could pick up a couple million bean acres. It depends on where you're at. If you're sitting here in the on the best ground in Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, and you can raise 240, 250 bushel corn, you're saying, you know, I talked to him, you're saying, Chip, there's no way I'm going to plant more bean acres. However, that's a minority of the corn belt and minority of the acres. You get in the northern uh, plains, the Dakotas, there's six or seven different, uh, you know, crop mixes they could have. Corn's probably at the bottom of it. Cotton's going to pick up acres in the south. I've already talked to people in, in southern Indiana, southern Illinois. They're going to plant a few more bean acres because they weren't able to price the nitrogen and fertilizer early on. They wanted to, but their supplier would not let them. All right, we have a lot more to cover. So let's take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. During the cattle industry convention this week, there's quite a bit of talk about inflation and record high retail meat prices. So what impact could inflation have in the broader economy? Here's John Phipps. Inflation news fills the air. Partly, I think it's due to the aftermath of an unprecedented run of low inflation. For example, it's been a dozen plus years since we managed to even creep up close to two and a half percent. Nonetheless, that was yesterday. Who cares? Nobody frets about inflation that didn't happen. Meanwhile, the average inflation rate, which is measured by the Consumer Price Index, is just that, an average. 
Since this graph was made, we logged three more months of relatively high inflation to end 2021 at a 7% annual increase. As I have discussed before, each of us, however, has a personal inflation rate depending on what we buy. Does that ever make a difference? In fact, using a personal CPI calculator that you can find online, we found out our personal inflation rate was an embarrassing 0.8%. Obviously, we don't consume price-zooming stuff like having a kid in college, buying another house, or needing childcare. We have Medicare, and power tools have remained remarkably affordable, so our inflation experience is unique, just like everybody else's. Percent increases can always uh, cloud the issue. I talked last year about how eggs are an astonishing bargain, so a 12% rise from $0.08 cents to $0.10 cents per egg isn't felt like the similar percent increase in furniture. And there are citizens who have finally had their decades of warning about inflation justified. One inflation future I can imagine is consumer spending gradually winding down as pandemic savings are exhausted, slowing the economy and easing the supply web turmoil. That seems to be the way Wall Street sees it, as inflation expectations there remain around 3% for this whole year and lower in 2023. The bond market is telling pretty much the same story. While inflation is real and a present irritation, a lot of stuff remains remarkably affordable. February is the month when I add to my stylish collection of plaid flannel shirts, usually on sale for five bucks or less. And I just replaced our bedroom TV very cheaply so I could tell the actors without glasses. Food, housing, and fuels seem to be the focus of what when we talk about inflation, probably because we buy them so often and see the price. Meanwhile, we fixate on an average of everything sold, not what we buy. Consequently, even if most consumable prices slow, it will still feel like high inflation to many. Thank you, John. I know he was busy preparing for that winter storm this week. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Machinery Pete has tractor tables. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week's episode is all about 55. We're going to Illinois to check out a 1955 Oliver Super 55. Uh, it came out of Goose Lake, Iowa also, and uh, it had a loader on it originally, and I don't know, still it's in pretty good shape. Still gets used a little bit here and there mainly with the three-point hitch blade, blade the rock driveway. There's always washouts and kind of blade them in. Um, I got a blade that's got a couple wheel weights on, so it's got plenty of weight. And this one here, you're sitting low and you can watch the blade real good and it's easy to maneuver for things like that. He said, I got a new pipe and I'll give it to you. And so I, done and manufactured it myself. Cut it down in half and welded it back together down there in the joint and put a clamp and blow it out the front. Because uh, this one here, if it sets and idles, it likes to 
smoke a little bit and get a put black smoke uh, when the pipe was right here and soot on the tractor. So this here eliminated it real well and you know, works fine. You don't get any smoke in your face when you're driving? Ne never. No. Nope. Parades or anything, nobody complains about it. They like this one. You got a clear view. <laughs> Well, the meat industry has been in the spotlight at the White House the past year, and it's a mix of optimism with a side of caution that seems to be consuming conversations among beef producers. Clinton Griffiths explains why next. And later, a family trapped in the recent Kansas wildfires, and they survived their story. Plus, how support continues to stream in. It's a story that you won't want to miss. Still ahead. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, despite a number of challenges, 2021 turned out to be a pretty good year for the beef industry in many respects. And this week, thousands of cattlemen and women gathered to plan the future at the annual Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA trade show in Houston, Texas. And that's where we find Farm Journal's Clinton Griffiths. Time about 6,500 gathered here in Houston. Now, not its biggest turnout, but a solid return following the last two years of COVID disruption. And while cattle prices and the pandemic have caused some angst with different factions of the industry. This week, unity and better markets were mostly the focus. Finding a way forward following the pandemic-driven fallout around record large cutouts, political and policy measures targeting competition, and inventory backlogs is the mission at this year's Cattle Industry Convention. During the convention, an announcement JBS USA has agreed to a $52.5 million settlement over allegations of price fixing. The NCBA putting out a statement from CEO Colin Woodall, quote, it's clear from this settlement that cattle producers still don't have all the information they have demanded and is deserved. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley also weighing in, encouraging passage of a bill to improve price transparency and market access. We know the packers, as big and sophisticated as they are, are operating with much more complete information just because, you know, Cattle producers can't invest in a room full of economists to be running numbers for them all day. So making sure that that information is, is, is really out there and available for producers to engage in the marketplace is critical, and that doesn't look the same for every producer. Economists caution on getting the government too involved in markets. I'm not in favor of mandates in general. We, you know, we think mandates prevent markets from doing what they do. Markets are working. They don't always work the way producers would like them to, but that's how markets fix problems. Clearly with the, the overall popularity of the, the, the Packer Library concept, I think that's a good idea. I, you know, I think if you look at the, the efforts, all of the, the trade reporting areas have done to enhance cash sales, it has helped. Both suggesting 2022 is likely to bring new perspectives. We've been stuck on this issue for three years. We've got to come to a resolve on this and move forward. I think we're going to find that a lot of the, uh, a lot of that chatter will probably decrease a little bit just with continued higher cattle prices. Higher cattle prices are in the forecast for this year. We think the markets will trend higher 
generally speaking, as the year progresses, as you walk into tighter numbers because we have liquidated for three straight years. Good says the upward trend could last two, even three years. You'll see these markets move fairly significantly over the next 60 to 90 days. You're going to see feeder cattle prices, you're going to see fed cattle prices, calf prices, especially if we get some rain in here between now and, and April, we'll see calf prices uh, really get salty. That said, drought remains a real concern. You know, we start the year with about 40% of the beef cow herd affected by drought and about two-thirds affected by at least dry weather. And so that's a big number historically. Both of those numbers have been the top five of the last 40 years. Hay stocks also at their second lowest mark in 40 years. Cattle are already being pulled off of winter wheat pasture. It's super dry, no sub moisture. Our wheat, it's uh, as dry as I've ever seen it this time of year at this stage. Kimbrell comparing it to 2011 and 2012. Continued drought and a lack of feed remains the biggest risk to better cattle prices this year and beyond. Until we do get in better moisture conditions, we'll, we'll not only liquidate this year, we run the risk of maybe an additional year unless weather patterns change. If, if we go into another dry spring, we will see a lot of, of consequences and a lot of decisions have to be made in the first half of the year. Despite those uncertainties, 2022 begins with much more clarity and an expectation of better days ahead for U.S. beef. Front end supplies of fed cattle are at the smallest levels they've been since pre-COVID. So we're finally there. Thanks, Clinton. Yeah, demand has been strong, and it sounds like the outlook for prices is also strong for 2022. We'll get Chip Nellinger's thoughts on that next. All right, Chip Nellinger, Peter Meyer joining us again. Chip, we just had really this in-depth look at cattle prices and demand and just the cattle industry at NCBA's annual convention this year. Some optimism when it comes to cattle prices due to really the contracting herd across the country. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Um, and, you know, and I think the, the price strength this week, early this week, was based off that inventory number. I don't think it was a shock. I think the market kind of expected those numbers. Um, but not not much has changed yet. You know, we're still at risk of this drought ongoing into this spring. And, you know, some of these producers, unfortunately, out there uh, in the far west, they just liquidated everything and, and they're not coming back. So we've got some structural issues. Not with that being said, box beef this week, you know, took a, a big drop. Uh, the, the beef demand is going to be tied to the economy and this inflation aspect. And so there is that risk out there, but overall the numbers are supportive. Speaking of inflation and the com the, the economy, Pete, uh, you know, after the Fed said, yeah, we're going to raise interest rates coming up. Did we see money exit the stock market and come into the grains? Is that part of the reason that we are seeing this run in, in prices like soybeans? I, I don't know. No, I'm, I'm, I'm never a believer in that, in that money moving from equities to, to commodities. I think that the commodity money is separate. The commodity money from the start, whether you're buying, you know, uh, natural gas or crude oil. I mean, you know, now all of a sudden we're getting to the point at $85, $90 where all the pundits are out there saying, oh, we're going to 100. We're going to 100. We're going to 100. Yeah, OK, well, maybe we are. I don't know. But I think a lot of it has been and, and we talked about this earlier. You know, the soybean trade might also be something where 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 traders are out there saying, you know what, let's just buy some let's just buy some soybeans kind of as a hedge against inflation, this and that. As far as the rate hikes are concerned, a bit surprised they didn't do anything 
last month. Certainly, it would appear that they're going to do something in March. Um, and I think what you've seen the reaction has been uh, in the equity markets is just been extreme volatility. I mean, last week, today, this week, it's kind of calmed down a little bit. But last week, it was just, you know, all over the map. So I don't necessarily see money going out and going into something else as much as I just see some tremendous uncertainty. Chip, do you see any warning signs when it comes to corn demand? I mean, you look at, you know, a contracting cattle herd, you look at some of the ethanol production numbers. Are there any warning signs right now that you think could be more of an anchor for corn prices? Well, not that I see. Uh, you know, to me, demand is kind of firing on all cylinders, right? I mean, we're cranking right along on the exports. Uh, our, our uh, you know, ethanol has been, uh, been strong and hitting the numbers that we need to. You know, what you're asking, though, is, is there that potential black swan out there, something we don't know in a bump along the, the, the road here some, somewhere out ahead of us? And that's always possible. You know, some of this is also, uh, you know, depending on the Black Sea area, what happens with the Russia-Ukraine situation. Pete, strong crude oil prices usually means good uh, news for ethanol demand. Are those two still tied together? No. And um, the reason for that is, and we believe, I mean, look, Chip is right. Ethanol had a great run at the end of the, at the end of the fourth quarter, right? I mean, I can imagine that these ethanol guys were having the uh, let's buy a private jet uh, conversation around the water cooler. But guess what? You saw it this week. These inventories are enormous now as we go into February and March. So, you know, I, I, I mean, it is somewhat tied in our opinion, though, you, you know, you cannot discount these like Ford F-150 Lightning numbers and the electric vehicles that are coming in. Now we think that we think that probably it's going to take until 24 or 25. So we see that ethanol demand kind of peaking and then just flatlining after that sustainable aviation fuel, maybe the next uh, next demand segment for ethanol. All right, Pete, Chip, thank you so much for joining us. Let's take a quick break and we'll have much more right here on US Farm Report. Questions about the supply chain continue to roll in. Here's John Phipps. Tommy Barrett from Hedgesville, West Virginia, has a question about the supply chain. What changes have been or are being made in the farm-to-table supply chain in the USA to better serve consumers if a shutdown occurs again in the future? Are there new safeguards in place to use farm products so the products will not be wasted? Great question, and one that may have a different answer than you might expect. Changes have been implemented to deal with shortages, but not by legislation or regulation so much as by everyone from farmers to consumers in the chain. Perhaps the biggest adjustment has been consumer behavior. Shoppers are modifying their buying habits. We have different expectations from grocery stores and restaurants. Much of what we call shortages, I would label outages. For example, Jan has one particular brand of chicken pot pie she prefers. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. She always checks, and when it's there, she buys some, regardless of whether it's on that week's list now. The same with chicken thighs, chicken broth, pint Ziploc bags, our kind of orange juice, and small cans of corn. Yes, I keep the always checklist on my phone as well, even if I'm at the supermarket for light bulbs. There are more examples, and they change, but consumers are adjusting to sporadic availability. As consumers adapt, panic buying decreases. This, in turn, makes outages less frequent and briefer. 
One of the biggest sources of food waste is aesthetic waste, where products, mostly fresh produce, don't look absolutely perfect and they end up being discarded. We're getting over that pickiness as well. More home gardens are really helping there. Processors and shippers are developing alternatives to the most efficient and absolutely cheapest methods as they look at more reliable and expensive ways to supply consumers, those increased costs are a factor in recent food inflation. Even at the worst of the pandemic shortages, there was no real lack of food, usually just a lack of choice. Two years of COVID have taught us what the Rolling Stones tried to tell us way back in 1969. You can't always get what you want. As for food waste in the U.S., it has always been scandalously high. Pre-COVID, it was about 40%. Whether the relatively mild effects of the recent food industry turmoil nudges that downward remains to be seen. One final note. One of the most cited reasons behind outages and real shortages has been the great trucker shortage. That may or may not be a real thing, and I'll be looking into that in an upcoming show. Thank you, John. And you can send your questions to John at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, when we come back, what would you do if you were trapped in a wildfire trying to find a way out? Well, it's a remarkable story of survival and hope that came from the ashes. That Grit with Grace story is next. Grit with Grace is brought to you by Zoetis. Your dedication runs deep and it fuels everything Zoetis does. To protect and support cattle and those who care for them, we are Born of the Bond. Learn more at bornofthebond.com. Well, just seven weeks ago, wild winds sparked uncontrollable wildfires, and the wildfire wounds are still fresh. But from the flames is a staggering story of survival, as we show you this week in Grit with Grace. Barras Ranch is a staple in western Kansas. My great-granddad, a mile west of here, homesteaded in the late 1880s. But today, Paradise, Kansas looks far from a dream destination. Looks like a desert or moonscape, maybe somebody described it as. It's kind of hard to look at, really. What can be lush landscape with the right conditions is now charred and scarred. It was December 15th, it was a Wednesday. Stephanie's Ken's daughter. She and her husband, David, live and ranch with the family on their homestead. It wasn't tornado weather, it wasn't hail weather, it was just, you could just sense that there was something different. With wind warnings, not even those were enough to prepare this area for what was about to hit, as what they believe were downed power lines sparked a fire that changed their fate. About 2.30 in the afternoon, um, our neighbors to the north and west of us, um, Craig and Jolene Lawson, they called and they said, hey, uh, fire! there's a fire. Um, and they said that it's headed towards our house. Could you guys bring a couple of trucks and trailers over and help us evacuate our horses? With that, they took off. David and their son in one truck and trailer and Stephanie and their son's roommate in another truck. We got over to their house. Um, we pull into their driveway. Craig meets us there and he's like, hey, the fire's already here. Seeing the fire on the horizon, they jumped in to head back east toward their ranch when the truck and trailer flipped over from the high winds. Those three ran back and jumped in with me. And at this point, we, can, we can't necessarily see the flames, but we can feel the heat. But they didn't even get 100 yards north and the fire was already crossing the highway. 
so they turned around. Craig called and he said, hey, Jolene's still in the house. He said, you guys need to go and grab her. So they did. What they didn't know at the time is the wildfires were so furious, it tore through a 25-mile path in about 18 minutes. Blowing so hard, it would have been, it would have been jumping a half a mile to a mile at a time. And at that point, they were trapped. The fire trucks meet us at the end of their driveway, and they're like, no, you can't go west. There's another fire coming over the top of this fire. So they followed the tanker truck and two rural fire trucks into a green winter wheat field that the firefighters knew would provide the least amount of fuel for the fire. And this is all volunteer firemen. I mean, at this point, it is, it is our local neighbor. I mean, people that we know, have known our entire lives. And with that, those volunteer firefighters came up with a plan to try to survive. We're gonna sit here and we're gonna wait it out and the tanker's gonna pour water over the top of us when the fire gets close. She says with a limited amount of water left in the tank, they didn't turn the water on until the fire was closing in. We're sitting in the middle of the wheat field and um, when, when the fire came over, um, Grady's best friend, Tyler, was on the back of the fire truck and um, he was outside spraying us with water. <laughs> Sorry. He was the one that was outside spraying all the trucks with water. This video shows you just how close they were to not surviving that day. With this ring of green, the only thing that didn't burn. Thankful to be alive, the Dickersons didn't know if their own ranch and livestock were caught in the flames too. We got about a mile and a half, two miles from our house and I could see that the house was on fire. They lost nearly all their personal belongings except the clothes on their back. Well, it was the next morning before it got, when it got daylight that we really could assess the damage and, and start finding the cattle. 200 head of their cattle gone. But what happened hours after Bar S Ranch was devastated by the fires is where the story gets better. You really don't know what kind of friends you have until something like this happens. 600 head of cattle that were immediately taken in by friends up to 450 miles away. As much as anything, let you know that there's still really good people left in the world. Some of that relief has come from people the Stilos and Dickersons know personally, others from people they've never met. There was just a constant stream of hay trucks bringing hay in that people had donated. A convoy of hay trucked in from hundreds of miles away. I had a friend tell me this last weekend that we were so lucky because the people that all showed up, uh, the people that have sent donations, a lot of people don't see how much you affect other people's lives until your funeral. And they said, basically, you got to you got to attend your funeral, but you're still alive to tell about it. While it'll be at least three years before this ranch gets back to full capacity, this family is thankful that from the ashes rose relief that will continue to restore hope for years to come. It's not just rebuilding houses and barns. Pastures are unrecognizable and miles upon miles of fencing will need to be replaced. We'll show you how that steady stream of help is continuing in paradise next. Well, Convoy of Hay is now piled up at Bar S Ranch, a sign of selfless acts of kindness from people the Stilos and Dickersons don't even know. And those acts of kindness are what's providing hope for a family who lost so much in the wildfire seven weeks ago.
The wildfires in western Kansas left miles upon miles of scars. I think FSA office says that we have roughly 40 miles of fence to rebuild. And it's hope now rising from these ashes. We've got to completely rebuild the fence since it was damaged in the fire, so we've got to take it off in order to rebuild it. Rural Vista FFA chapter in Kansas is two hours away from the ranch here in Paradise. We're here to help clean up and tear down fence and hopefully build some more for them. And they made the trek, volunteering their time to help repair the damage done. We're um, ripping out the barbed wire fence. Some seeing the wildfire wounds for the first time. Just looking around it, you know, you see it and you go, wow, this is just crazy. Fighting through cedars in the cold, these high schoolers helped in a big way, even if at times it felt like they were barely helping at all. We've been working all morning and you think that we've came so far and then you look back that way and realize that it's not that much. Piece by piece, it's volunteers like this helping in more ways than even meets the eye. People ask me how you handled it. That's the way you handled it, by being with people that, that really cared and came and was trying to do things for you. Well, there were other ranch families who lost everything along with hundreds of livestock. If you still want to help, we have links on how you can do just that, along with other powerful Grit with Grace stories from this past year. Simply scan the QR code on your screen and it will take you directly there. All right, that's all the time we have this weekend for U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.